Welcome to today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Monday, February 19th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here is our first story. It's entitled, Lawmakers Target Overhaul of Iowa Boards Commissions. Governor Kim Reynolds has proposed eliminating more than 100 citizen-led oversight panels. It's written by Benjamin Fisher of the Telegraph Herald. The Iowa legislature advanced several bills last week that could limit the authority of local governments and citizen-led boards or change the way they do business altogether. Opponents say the proposed laws would erode local control. Republicans, though, were parting way, parting, pairing away state citizen boards at a more limited scale than what Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds has proposed. Iowa Representative Shannon Lundgren, a Republican from Piasta, and Iowa Senator Cherry Kerry Colker, a Republican from Dyersville, said they had both received pushback from constituents on the changes. Perhaps the most impactful proposed citizen input and local control legislation involved in the state's hundreds of citizen boards and commissions, which are appointed to advise or oversee state agencies and be guided by constituent perspective. This year, Reynolds proposed eliminating more than 100 of these after pushing for a review of them by an out-of-state consultant last year. Last week, the Iowa House and Senate took different approaches to achieve that goal. The House bill takes a more limited first pass at the state's boards and calls for the elimination of 49 boards and commissions. Lundgren serves on the House State Government Commission and said in her weekly newsletter that the bill focused on most most on boards that no longer met. The boards and commissions outlined in the House bill include the Conservation Education Program Board, the Prison Industries Advisory Board, Community College Faculty Advisory Committee, Child Care Advisory Committee, 911 Communications Council, and more. The duties of most would be absorbed by the agencies they previously advised, per the bill. Opponents of the House bill contend that some of those boards and commissions were not meeting because the state had not appointed members to fill vacancies. The House's bill was in line with Coker's inclinations. I have heard a lot of input and some pushback on this, she told the Telegraph Herald at the Capitol last week. That includes a lot of doctors, actually, whose specialties could be impacted by board and commission changes, but some of those haven't been met for 10 years. What if we just started with getting rid of those, then we can see where we are. The Senate has taken a more aggressive approach and pursued Reynolds' recommendation to eliminate or combine the 111 boards and commissions identified by the consultant. The Senate Local Government Committee also considered bills limiting cities' control of local commissions. One bill advanced out of the committee would restrict city council's control over civil service commissions, which provide recommendations regarding the hiring and discipline of certain city employees by regulating membership of commissions per a city's population and limiting the punishments cities can hand down, among other things. The committee ranking Democrats, Senator Janice Weiner of Iowa City, said the bill interferes with complicated local personnel issues. If you are running a police department or fire department, there are things that happen internally that don't have to do with interactions with the public, she said. Subcommittees also moved bills that would allow city councils tighter control over staff at public libraries. During a Senate local government subcommittee meeting last week, opponents to the bill voiced concern that it would dilute the authority of city library boards, whose members must receive training to serve, and it 
and give it to elected city councils, which are required to have no such training. Senator Mike Klimish, a Republican from Spillville, a former longtime mayor, said in the subcommittee that he did not see the bill as changing library board's role, but that he would consider more information in committee. Provisions of the library bills could be attached to budget or taxation legislation later in the session. The Senate Local Government Committee also advanced a bill, one that has appeared in recent sessions in some form, that would require some county boards or supervisors to be elected based on geographical districts rather than at large, as many are now. This session's bill only makes the requirement of counties with populations 150,000 and over, which would exclude area counties. It's so important to be able to have rural representation, said Iowa Senator Don Driscoll, a Republican from Lindbergh. The rural communities still live in those counties. Senator Pam Yoakum, a Democrat from Dubuque, told the Telegraph Herald the bill is problematic. Counties already have the authority to have districts if they want to by referendum, she said. Voters can decide that, and most haven't. This is a slippery slope. Another perennial bill calling for the elimination of county compensation boards, which recommend county elected officials pay increases, was pulled from the same meeting's agenda, though another bill related to county compensation boards still is being considered in the House. Today's BizBuzz article is entitled Women's Finance Center, or excuse me, Fitness Center Preps for Piasta Grand Opening. Facility will offer a variety of workout classes that focus on strength training and community building. It's written by Grace Neeland of the Telegraph Herald. A women's fitness center is warming up for its grand opening in Piasta. Sweat Inspires Sisterhood, located at 7477 Thunder Valley Drive, is set to open March 1st near Dark Bird Tap House and Jumble Coffee. The fitness center will offer a variety of workout classes for women with a focus on strength training and community building. I wanted to create something that was by and for women, said owner Erica Hermson. It's a fitness center, but I hope it can be more than that. I want it to be a place for events, workshops, or just to meet new people. Hermson launched Sweat Inspire Sisterhood online in 2016 as a virtual workout community. She said she started the business to create a space for adult women to focus on fitness in a healthy, empowering environment. The online community grew over the years, Hermson said, prompting her to work toward opening a brick-and-mortar location. A fairly native, she said it made sense to build that location close to her hometown. I always knew I wanted to open something back home, said Hermson, who currently lives near Kansas City, Missouri. That's always been the dream. The fitness center will offer classes six days a week, Hermson said, with the exception of Sunday. There, instructors will lead classes on high-intensity interval training, dance classes, hot yoga, and more. Women can sign up as members for unlimited access or purchase class passes to take a certain number of drop-in lessons. In-person members also will have access to Sweat Inspire Sisterhood's ongoing online offerings. All classes will focus on improving strength and overall well-being, Hermson said. Our motto has always been strong, not skinny, she said. Growing up in the 90s and seeing all the photos of super, super skinny girls in magazines, I know that's easy to internalize, but we really want to focus on getting strong and staying healthy, not just losing a bunch of weight. 
Sweat Inspire Sisterhood will host an open house for its Piasta location from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February the 23rd, and from 7 to 10 a.m. Saturday and Sunday, February 24th and 25th. Tours will be available at those times as well as discounted Founders membership pricing. Further updates on the center can be found online at sweatinspiresisterhood.com or by following the Sweat Inspire Sisterhood Facebook page. And today's Love That Lasts column is entitled, Makokota Couple Complement Each Other for More Than 55 Years. Jack and Marilyn Willie were married September 28, 1968 at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Fairley. Written by Michelle London. On December 1, 1967, Jack Willie gave an engagement ring to Marilyn Hess. What had started out as a professional relationship had blossomed into a close friendship, and Jack was hoping it would be more than that. Marilyn, now age 77, was a Fairley native who had graduated from Capri College in Dubuque, while Jack, now age 76, was a graduate of Stewart's School of Hairstyling in Davenport. They met while putting their beauty skills to work at Eula's Salon in Makokota. Friday nights became the night to meet friends and co-workers at the Green Mill Cafe in Makokota for dinner and to talk about their work. Jack and Marilyn's friendship developed from there. Marilyn accepted the ring from Jack, but not necessarily his proposal of marriage. I told him, this doesn't mean we'll get married, she said. It means we'll see if we're compatible. Jack opened his own salon, and Marilyn was still working at Eula's. In between, they would go to the movies, go out to dinner, and get to know each other better. With their compatibility confirmed after almost a year, Jack and Marilyn married at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Fairley on September 28, 1968. After a Northern California honeymoon, the Willies settled into an apartment in Makoka and began the job of running the salon called Jack and Associates. They owned the salon for more than 53 years and sold it in 2021. The couple has three children, Jason, Eric, and Keisha Fraum. They also have nine grandchildren and one great-grandson. The Willies have lived in their current home in Makokota for a half century. Jack said he knew, just knew Marilyn would be a life partner. I think mainly it was that I could tell what she believed in, he said. There wasn't any one particular thing. I just knew we would be a good match. For Marilyn, the attraction was in Jack's kind ways. He was very nice, very thoughtful, very considerate, she said. He was just a really nice guy. We liked to do the same things. It was great. Marilyn also fell in love with Jack's family, which was much larger than her own. I was an only child, and I didn't have a lot of close cousins or anything like that, she said, so we would have a great time. All of my aunts and uncles and cousins just loved her, Jack added. My family used to joke that if Marilyn and I got a divorce, they'd keep her. Oldest son Jason of Eldridge remembers a loving home with hardworking parents. They cared about each other and they cared about us, he said. We weren't rich, but we didn't lack for anything. As if owning and running a busy salon wasn't enough, Jack also dove into civic engagement. He served on Jackson County Board of Supervisors for eight terms, 32 years, and sat on several committees associated with the board's work. He and Marilyn were also involved with the Iowa Cosmetology Association, where Jack served on the board and as its presidents for several years. He spent time serving on the board of East Central Intergovernmental Agency and Operation New View, 
and has been appointed by three governors to the state's Mental Health and Disability Service Council. I was always so blessed because my clients were willing to reschedule and fit around my schedule when I had to be gone, he said. Because when you're on the board of supervisors and not just a Tuesday morning meeting schedule, while he was reduced his community involvement, while he has reduced his community involvement somewhat, Jack still serves on several boards. Jack's busy schedule was compatible with Marilyn, who was always who has always loved keeping the ship on an even keel at home while working as a stylist at the salon. Jack left for work before I did, she said, and I would come home before he did because he always worked 12-hour days. He did that for many years, so I would take care of the kids and everything else. I mowed the grass, I washed the cars, I did all that stuff, and that was perfectly fine with me. When it came time to sell the business and retire, the Willies lucked out. They hadn't even yet listed the business for sale when a woman walked in and mentioned she'd heard they were thinking of retirement and that her daughter would be interested. It was kind of a fluke, Jack said. It happened fast and it just worked out. But retirement hasn't kept Jack from continuing to give back to the community. He still serves on the ECIA board as well as Jackson County's mental health board. He also serves on a Resource and Conservation Development Committee on the Finance Committee for Iowa Workforce Development and was recently appointed by Governor Kim Reynolds to the Health and Human Services Council. It keeps me busy, he said, but I don't think I could just sit at home. I think it's important to feel needed. The couple are also members of Sacred Heart Parish in Makoka, where they have sung in the choir for many years. Marilyn belongs to a ladies' bridge group, and she and Jack play together in a couple groups. They are also involved with the Jackson County Historical Society, where Jack has served as president for the past eight years. We have lots of things that keep us busy, Marilyn said. Son Jason said his parents never disagreed, at least not that he or his siblings were aware of. We never saw them argue, he said. They were both amazing role models. He said he remembers his parents always being thoughtful and picking out gifts and cards, something that he has carried over into his own relationships. My dad was big on giving flowers, he said. Both of them are big with cards, but they always made sure to pick out a card that had some meaning rather than just giving something generic. So I always make sure to do that, too. Marilyn said she has enjoyed being the family organizer and decision maker. I do like it, she said. It's like being a hairdresser, putting all the bits and pieces together and making it all work. For Jack, the key to his and Marilyn's long marriage isn't all that surprising considering his busy schedule. Flexibility, he said. You have to be willing to give and not always take. Marilyn's advice is to always keep it real and just go with the flow. I knew what Jack needed and how much he enjoyed working and giving to the community, and that was okay with me, she said. I just kept it all going. From the Dubuque and Tri-State page, Greater Dubuque Home and Builders Show highlights new tools, new tech. Grand River Center hosts event featuring more than 70 vendors. It's written by Eric Hogstrom of the Telegraph Herald. Carla Bream attended the Greater Dubuque Home and Builders Show, hoping to see something she wasn't expecting, and she wasn't disappointed. I found a pretty cool grill that I liked, Bream said. Bream of Fairley, Iowa, was one of many people who filled Grand River Center on Sunday, the third and final day of the annual home show. I've come to the show a lot, and I like it because you get to see vendors that you didn't know were out there, Bream said. 
This year's edition of the show featured more than 70 vendors displaying supplies and services. The majority of our vendors are local, and we pride ourselves on saying it's a local show, said Julie Kinsella, executive director of the Dubuque Home Builders and Associates, the organization, the organizers of the event. We have all kinds of vendors for whatever people need to build a house or remodel. Kinsella's organization is a nonprofit that supports the local building industry. It also presents the annual Parade of Homes event. The home show has been held for more than 30 years in Dubuque. We have put the show on for the past four years, Kinsella said. Prior to that, we had a promoter handle the show for us. Kinsella expected the three-day show to draw a total of 1,500 to 2,000 people to Grand River Center. She said visitors would find vendors displaying a variety of new and high-tech items. There are a lot of new tools that home builders can use, she said. Austin Gellis of Dubuque's T&T Rentals showed off one of the new tools at the show. Gellis used a remote control to operate an electric miniature skid loader. He sent the skid loader rumbling across the floor of the center, had it turn in a tight 180-degree circle, and raise and lower its bucket while people asked him questions about the equipment's specifications. The most exciting piece of equipment we have is this mini skid loader, Gellis said. It's pretty powerful. It can hold 800 pounds in the bucket. You can run it with a controller like a video game, and it can fit through doorways. Corey Manternak also showed off new technology at the show. We're a wireless robotic lawnmower company, said Manternak of Automo Dyersville. Manternak said new technology uses satellites to guide robotic mowers across lawns. It's totally self-sufficient, he said. You can set it up to do lawn stripes. You can set it up to do whatever you want it to do. I can be I, I can be at work and start it, and when I get home, the lawn is mowed. Manternak said a previous generation of robotic lawn mowers operated like robotic vacuum cleaners, and roaming was limited by in-ground fencing like wireless dog fences. The latest generation of robotic mowers is more similar to satellite-guided planters in farm fields. They are exact within one-sixteenth of an inch, Manternak said of the new mowers. You initially drive it around your lawn to program it for your lawn's perimeter, and if you don't want it to go into the garden, you create a no-mow zone around the garden. Next up is the Ask TH column, and then it's entitled, What's Happening with Carter and Asbury Roads? Will Clock Tower Play Bells Again? It's written by Michelle London of the Telegraph Herald. Question. How much longer will Carter Road and Asbury Road be a four-way stop? Is there any update on when the damaged lights will be functioning again? Answer. According to the City of Dubuque, engineering technician Dwayne Richter, the traffic signal infrastructure at the intersection had already been scheduled for replacement due to deteriorating underground signal components prior to a January 12th weather-related crash at the intersection that did further damage to the signal. A vehicle crash during a January snowstorm severely damaged the signal's control cabinet and sheared off its wiring at ground level, Richter said in a statement to the Telegraph Herald. It was determined that the underground wiring feeding the signal was degraded beyond a simple replacement. Richter said it is not known how long the intersection will operate as a four-way stop, adding that as soon as modifications can be made, city crews will install wiring that will bring the damaged traffic signal back to normal operations 
and allow the originally scheduled replacement project to continue. Those modifications will be the first step in the eventual replacement project, which is scheduled to be completed this fall, Richter said. Once finished, the new traffic light arms will be above Asbury Road and include left turn only signals as well. Question, what happened to the bells and bell music from the clock tower on Main Street that used to play every morning at 9 a.m.? Answer, like Hill Valley's clock tower in Back to the Future, Dubuque's clock tower is a landmark with a story to past. The current clock tower was built in 1873, electrified in 1927, and moved to the newly formed Town Clock Plaza in 1971 on Main Street. A roundabout was built around the tower in the early 2000s, and it got a little bit of a makeover in 2007 with a new electrical system, lighting, and paint. City of Dubuque's Park Division Manager, Steve Fessel, and his staff are the people who maintain the clock tower, which is not an easy task considering all of its moving parts. Since last fall, the music and chimes that usually emanate from the clock at 9 a.m. each day have stopped playing. It is an issue that Fessel and Park Division staff have been trying to repair. Staff are working on the issue, and we have contacted the vendor for the town clock's control panel to try to determine what is preventing the bells and bell music from being played, Fessel told the Telegraph Herald. Now here's some news in brief. First, police say Dubuque woman faces neglect charges after toddler wandered streets alone. Police said a woman faces felony neglect charges after her toddler was found wandering Dubuque streets with her dog alone. Shaniqua S.S. Grisson, age 32, of 1876 Washington Street, was arrested at 7.01 p.m. Saturday at her residence on three counts of neglect or abandonment of a dependent person. Neglect or abandonment of a dependent person is a Class C felony in Iowa, punishable by up to 10 years in prison. Court documents state that officers were dispatched at approximately 5.17 p.m. to the 1800 block of Elm Street for a report of a child and dog walking alone. Police located a four-year-old girl and her dog alone with no caretaker. The girl told police that she and the dog had left her residence without her mother, who was later identified as Grisson, documents state. The windchill index was 9 degrees when police located the girl, who was wearing a jacket, pajama pants, shoes, but no hat or gloves, documents state. A review of City of Dubuque's traffic cameras showed the girl walking or running into the travel portion of the roadway in the 1800 block of Washington Street multiple times, documents state. The girl was later seen on the traffic camera footage running across the 1800 block of Elm Street, causing a vehicle traveling north on Elm to come to a stop to avoid hitting her, documents state. Officers arriving at Grisson's resident found two eight-year-old children home alone and were told Grisson had gone shopping, documents state. Next, police say vehicle strikes, injures pedestrian, then flees scene in Dubuque. Police said a pedestrian was struck and injured by a vehicle that fled the scene in Dubuque. Abrina M. Boole, age 16, of Dubuque, was transported by private vehicle to Unity Point Health Findlay Hospital for treatment of her injuries, according to Dubuque Police. Boole told police she was crossing Illinois Avenue near the intersection with Drexel Avenue at 9.35 p.m. Saturday when a vehicle struck her and caused her to lose consciousness. 
A witness told police that a white Chevy pickup truck turning from Drexel onto Illinois struck Boole. The driver then fled the scene after seeing the witness, police said. Fenimore Library to hold information sessions on design project. Dateline Fenimore, Wisconsin. Fenimore Library officials seek input on the future of the organization. Dwight T. Parker Public Library and FEH Design will hold a series of information sessions about a design project beginning this month at the Fenimore Memorial Building, 850 Lincoln Avenue, according to an online announcement. Sessions will be held at 6 p.m. on February the 26th, March the 7th, March 12th, and March 25th. Additionally, all-day design sessions are scheduled for March the 7th and March 12th at the library, 925 Lincoln Avenue. These are fast-paced spark sessions aimed at consensus building and clear design direction. Call Kathy Smith at area code 608-822-6294 for more information. And the Dubuque Police Department and Dubuque County Sheriff's Office report the following. Jessica L. Schmidt, age 36, of 1157 Iowa Street, number 2, was arrested at 1.53 a.m. Sunday in the 3200 block of Theta Drive on charges of domestic assault with strangulation, domestic assault with injury, and child endangerment. And William R. Robinson, age 56, of 3726 Pennsylvania Avenue, was arrested at 9.22 a.m. February the 12th at Dubuque Law Enforcement Center on a warrant charging assault. Now we turn to the opinion page, and we've got a other view written by David A. Crow, who is the Chief Administrative Officer for CAMBA Incorporated. He wrote this for InsideSources.com. It's entitled, Housing Credit, Still a Bipartisan Success Story. In Washington, it feels like the spirit of 86. That's right, 86, as in 1986. That year, the House, then controlled by Democrats, voted 292 to 136 to approve legislation that contained a new program, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. A Republican Senate majority approved the bill, also by a wide margin, and President Ronald Reagan signed it. Members of a bipartisan group of lawmakers are now trying to expand the housing credit. Their colleagues should jump on board. Housing is infrastructure. Housing is health, and right now, the United States lacks an adequate supply of homes to the detriment of our infrastructure and wellness. Since 1986, the housing credit has produced nearly 4 million affordable housing units. CAMBA Housing Ventures has leveraged the credit to build all our 9% and 4% affordable and supportive housing developments. Senate Finance Committee Chair Ron Wyden, a Democrat from Oregon, and Representative Jason Smith, a Republican from Missouri, are pushing the Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act to allow us to do more. The bill would withdraw the 12.5% increase in the annual 9% housing credit allocation for 2023 through 2025 and reduce the private activity bond financing threshold for 4% housing credit from 50% to 30% for 2024 through 2025. The legislation also provides a transition rule for buildings with bonds issues. It is estimated these provisions will create 200,000 affordable housing units nationwide. These units are badly needed. According to the Action Campaign nationwide, 12.1 million renters pay more than half of their monthly income on rent. 
to afford a one-bedroom apartment at the national average fair market rent, a minimum wage worker must do 80 hours per week. How do you do that and make sure your children get to the doctor or school? For New Yorkers, it feels impossible. New York City isn't the only place where housing prices crowd out working in middle-class Americans. The Joint Center for Housing Studies of Harvard University notes that 38% of rural rental households are cost-burdened and 19% are severely burdened. Finding a congressional district that has an adequate supply of affordable rental housing is nearly impossible. Ohio needs an additional 270,000 affordable rental units to keep up with demand. These statistics are fueling the country's homelessness crisis. Shelters are overflowing and street encampments are proliferating. To solve this increase in home homelessness and housing instability, we need to build more affordable housing. The Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act would allow us to keep more citizens off the streets while contributing to local and national growth. After 38 years, the housing credit supports 6.33 million jobs per year. Since 1986, it has generated nearly $260 billion in tax revenues and more than $715 billion in wages and business income. The housing credit provides provisions in the Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act will generate more than $38 billion, $34 billion in wages and business income, creating 304,000 jobs and generate almost $12 billion in federal, state, and local tax revenue. For lawmakers, the return on investment is nearly unmatched. Providing more families with a home of their own will reduce intergenerational poverty and enhance economic mobility. As the National Low-Income Housing Coalition points out, Stanford University economist Raj Chetty estimates children who move to lower poverty neighborhoods see their earnings as adults increase by 31%. We know that children living in our stable, affordable, and supportive homes do better in school. That's why we must also build important supportive services into our affordable housing developments, which help residents lead healthier, more prosperous lives and reduce their need to access government assistance programs. Nearly 40 years ago, the 99th Congress put differences aside to create a program that has kept millions of working families and children off the streets. We need that spirit again. And this again, this was written by David A. Rowe, who is the Chief Administrative Officer for Canva, Inc., and he originally wrote this for InsideSources.com. You are listening to the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I am your reader, Scott Blavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. The other article on the opinion page today is written by Clarence Page of the Chicago Tribune. He is the recipient of a Pulitzer Prize in 1989 and columnist and editorial board member. He entered the Chicago Journalism Hall of Fame in 1992. And you can contact him via email at cpage at chicagotribune.com. His article is entitled, Despite Gloom, Immigration Has Positive Impact on Economy. When we think about the economy, it's not just numbers that matter. It's also how we feel about the numbers. Public discontent about the economy 
given even as the economy is growing and unemployment is low, has been President Joe Biden's persistent headache. I thought about this contrast between hard numbers and soft feelings as I spotted the recent Chicago Tribune headline, No Migrants Camped Out at O'Hare International Airport for First Time Since Summer. Questions Loom Over Dwindling City Funds. Indeed, the $150 million that Mayor Brandon Johnson budgeted to handle the migrant crisis is expected to be spent by April. Over the long haul, how many more will arrive is uncertain. We're subject to whether or when Texas Governor Greg Abbott or some other grandstanding Southern Republican governor sends another busload of asylum seekers to the Windy City at our windiest time of year. But for now, I'll take some good news wherever I can read it. The relief at O'Hare is welcome. So is the national news that unemployment has not risen above 4% for two years. Likewise, cooling inflation is most encouraging, from 9% or so to just over 3%. We're nearing the 2% goal set by Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell. But, as Team Biden knows all too well, the President's public approval ratings have been poor despite the favorable economic news. It's a hollow victory for an administration to nudge the economy into good news territory if nobody seems to be feeling or accepting it. Ironically, Considering all of the intention the media and the voters tend to place on a president's economic success, there's not really a lot a president can do to move the economy. They do what they can to try to influence the Federal Reserve and offer economic incentives and pray. But, considering the pressures put on Chicago and other cities from the migrant influx, it is ironic that when Powell was asked recently about the positive economic news on 60 Minutes, He pointed out that the U.S. economy has benefited from immigration. And, frankly, he added, just in the last year, a big part of the story of the labor market coming back into better balance is immigration returning to levels that were more typical of the pre-pandemic era. Was this why former President Donald Trump worked so hard to persuade House Republicans to scrap the bipartisan immigration and border security bill that had been worked out by Senate negotiators? Trump clearly wanted to hold on to one of his signature issues, the border is a mess and only he can fix it, even if it meant the demise of the most promising immigration compromise since the Reagan era. Trump and his MAGA supporters have tended to treat the lure of America to immigrants from around the world as a curse rather than a blessing, even when the economic data tell a different story. Trump thunders about migrants poisoning our nation's blood, Meanwhile, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office recently projected $7 trillion in added benefit to the U.S. economy over the coming decade thanks to the recent boost in immigration. That's a familiar tale in our land of immigrants, as many of us like to think of it. Immigration politics typically are a peculiar barometer of national feelings about the economy. When they feel good about their own economic futures, Americans tend to say, y'all come to the world. But when things turn gloomy, we tend to say, stay away, even when it robs the country of a generation that can help us to bring a better future. And again, this was written by Clarence Page, a recipient of the Pulitzer Prize in 1989 and a a Chicago Tribune columnist and editorial board member. I will read a health-related article entitled, Human's Best Friend. Health Research Benefits Both Ends of the Leash. It's written by Sharon M. Albright. 
of the American Kennel Club. The bond between humans and dogs has always been strong. In recent years, this bond has only grown stronger as dogs have become beloved members of the family, sharing our homes, hobbies, and furniture. But do you know that they also share many of the same health concerns as us? From cancer to infectious disease to toxin exposure and more, dogs and humans have many common threats to our physical health. Prevention and treatment strategies to minimize these threats might be similar in many canine and human diseases. Therefore, research to understand dog health might also benefit people at the other end of the leash. This mutual benefit demonstrates a concept known as One Health. The One Health approach recognizes a connection between the health of humans, animals, and their shared environment. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, One Health is becoming increasingly important due to the growing human population changes in climate and land use, such as increased farming, and increased movement of people, animals, and animal products through international travel and trade. These changes bring people and animals in close contact and make it easier for the rapid and global spread of disease. To tackle these challenges, a collaborative approach is needed among veterinarians, medical doctors, and other scientific health professionals working locally, nationally, and globally. Contributing to this effort is the AKC Canine Health Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing the health of all dogs and their owners. CHF provides funding for scientific research into the health needs of dogs throughout their lifetime. With more than $68 million invested since 1995, CHF-funded research has explored various health problems such as skin allergies, bone cancer, epilepsy, and more. As technology advances and new threats to canine health emerge, CHF remains responsive and directs research dollars to projects with the most potential to advance the health of dogs. If that research simultaneously advances knowledge for human medicine, all the better. Several examples of CHF-funded research have already made a significant impact on One Health. These include, ongoing research is examining the link between cancer development and toxin exposure. Research has already shown that canine bladder cancer is associated with household use of insecticides and herbicides, as well as living in areas of higher industrial activity. Similarly, lymphoma in dogs and people is associated with household pesticide and herbicide use and proximity to industrial areas. Researchers are studying how genetic and environmental factors combine to cause various cancers in dogs with the goal of developing better prevention strategies like water filtration and efforts to decrease air pollution. These strategies would benefit both dogs and humans. Bone cancer in dogs shares many similarities with the human form of this cancer, which is usually diagnosed in adolescence. Histotripsy is a non-invasive focused ultrasound method that mechanically breaks up tissues using controlled ultrasound pulses. It has been effectively used to treat liver cancer in humans and is now being studied to treat bone cancer in dogs. Successful laboratory studies have paved the way for an ongoing CHF-funded clinical trial using this treatment in affected dogs. It might eventually be helpful in treating humans with bone cancer too. Borrowing from human studies showing the benefits of ketogenic diet for children with epilepsy, CHF-funded researchers studied the phenomenon in dogs.
supplementing epileptic dogs with medium-chain triglyceride oil, one component of the ketogenic diet with direct anti-seizure effects on the brain, reduced seizure frequency and severity, and improved the behavioral problems associated with canine epilepsy, such as anxiety and cognitive changes. These are just a few examples of the benefits of One Health research. Investigators are studying many diseases that impact both dogs and humans, such as antibiotic resistance, tick-borne disease, breast cancer, and more. While the primary focus of CHF-funded research is to improve the health of dogs, the collaboration between scientists from different fields allow us to learn more quickly and efficiently, which can benefit both veterinary and human medicine. So, the next time your dog looks up at you from the other end of the leash, smile and know that you are connected in many ways and that we are all in this together. You can learn more at akcchf.org slash onehealth. Another health-related article, Can Honey Help With Coughs? It's written by Deb Balzer of the Mayo Clinic News Network. Coughs due to respiratory infections such as colds are common this time of year. An effective treatment for a disruptive cough might be sitting in your kitchen pantry. Dr. Angela Matkey, a pediatrician with Mayo Clinic Children's Center, says honey can help soothe coughs for adults and children. But, she says, never give honey to a child under the age of one. A spoonful of sugar might help the medicine go down, but the me- if the medicine is honey in this case... Honey is safe for anyone ages 1 and above, and it's been shown to be effective and safe for both children and adults, Matt Key says. Adding honey to warm water or tea, or just a spoonful of honey itself, can help with coughs. It has been shown to be more effective than over-the-counter cough medications, she says. Honey helps by soothing the throat and coating enough receptors. Here are her recommendations for children over the age of 1. You can start with a half a teaspoon to a teaspoon, some type of warm liquid. As they get older and they're able to more easily swallow the honey, you can just give it to them directly on a teaspoon, Matt Keith says. She recommends using a teaspoon every two hours, and this dosage applies equally to adults. And if you do choose to give honey for cough suppression, we would recommend that you use pasteurized honey, Matt Keith says. Honey is generally safe for adults and children older than age 1. Avoid giving honey, even in small amounts, to infants younger than 1. Honey might lead to a rare but serious gastrointestinal condition known as infant botulism, triggered triggered by exposure to Clostridium botulinum spores. The bacteria from these spores can thrive and multiply in a baby's intestines, producing a potentially harmful toxin. Now we turn to sports. We'll read an article entitled, Touchdown Dubuque, Fighting Saints Throttle Lincoln to Complete Weekend Sweep. It's written by Jim Lettner. Just a couple of long slap shots away from the University of Nebraska's historic Memorial Stadium, the Dubuque Fighting Saints hung a touchdown on the Lincoln Stars. The Saints scored seven times in the first 28 minutes, 38 seconds, en route to a 7-2 road victory Sunday at the Icebox to finish a three-game weekend in style. 
They handled Cedar Rapids 6-3 on Friday in Dubuque before squeaking out a 3-2 win Saturday night in Des Moines to earn their second three-game weekend sweep in three tries this season. We were so good in transition going from our neutral zone coverage into the offensive zone, and everyone up and down the line was making plays, said James Reeder, who scored two goals and assisted on a third after notching a hat trick in a 7-4 loss to Lincoln on December the 2nd in Dubuque in the team's only other meeting this season. Multiple lines were scoring goals, which is always big, but even more important when you're playing the third game in three days. Getting three wins is huge for us, and hopefully it carries over to next weekend for our home-and-home with Madison. The USHL Eastern Conference leading Saints earned their fourth consecutive win and extended their streak to nine games with at least one standings point. Thirteen different players recorded at least one point, while 15 players finished with plus one ratings and other five were even. Readers take the Saints to lead just 3 minutes and 48 seconds into the opening stanza. Juna Vason forced a Lincoln turnover with a hit at his own blue line, and Colin Frank pushed the puck ahead to Reader on the right wing. In all alone, Reader wired his 17th goal of the season inside the right post behind the goaltender Jan Shostak. Josh Giuliani doubled the lead four minutes, 57 seconds later with his third goal of the season. Calum Dick broke the puck out of his own zone to Andrew King, who had a give-and-go with Nick Romero before taking a sharp angle shot below the left circle. The shot caught Shostak, who fell on his rear end, and Giuliani buried the rebound with a one-timer from behind the circles. Going into the third game of a 3-3, three and three, it was huge to have a fast start, Giuliani said. If you get down by a couple goals early, it's tough to try to come back in that third game. The biggest key was everyone was working together so well. We got full game efforts from every single guy in the lineup tonight. Chase LaPinta made it 3-0 to zero and scored the eventual game winner with his 11th goal of the season with just 1 minute 41 seconds remaining in the third in the period. Eric Paulson jumped on a turnover in his own zone and immediately turned around to start a line rush before finding Juraj Pekarczyk on the left wing inside the Lincoln zone. Pekarczyk fed a streaking Lapinta on the right wing for a quick shot over Shostak's glove hand. This was a huge weekend for us and a great show of our character. It's something we can definitely build on, said LaPinta, who shared the team lead with seven shots on goal Sunday. Saturday night was tough because we had to come from behind, and today was tough because of the travel we had last night. But it says a lot about our team that we faced adversity and still swept the weekend. Showstack's night ended just 27 seconds into the middle period when Captain Lake Sondrial extended his USHL scoring lead with his 22nd goal and 57th point of the season. Reeder took a took shot that hit Showstack in the chest. The goalie couldn't track the rebound, and Sondrial poked the puck through a maze of skates and over the goal line. Just 43 seconds later, Fisher Scott greeted Lucas Massey with his seventh goal of the season. Noah Powell absorbed a hit along the left wall but spun out of it to make a cross-ice pass 
to Basin and Basinin for a two-on-one with his defense partner Scott. Basinin feathered a pass to a charging Scott who hit a wide-open net. Reeder made it six to zero with a goal on Dubuque's second power play of the night. He scored his 18th goal of the season at 4:41 on a backdoor tap-in, following a tic-tac-toe passing sequence involving Basin, Pekarczyk, and Sandriol. The power play clicked again three minutes and 57 seconds later on Noah Powell's 24th goal of the season. Seamus Powell retrieved a rebound and fed Lapinta at the right point. Noah Powell redirected Lapinta's shot past Massey for a 7-0 cushion. Lincoln scored twice in a span of 61 seconds to stop Dubuque's run. Max Ferkadik spoiled Kevin Riedler's shutout bid at 14.05, and Lane Loomer made it 7-2. There were a few instances where maybe Lincoln helped us out a little bit, but we were making all the plays that were in front of us, Saints coach Kirk McDonald said. We were really zipping the puck around and playing well. For a 3-3, three and three, we really managed the game well. It's hard when you have such a big lead early because sometimes the game gets away from you. But we did a really good job in third period. Nothing happened either way, and that was all we needed. Prior to the game, the Stars honored Dubuque native Corey Courtney for his 25 seasons of service as the team's trainer and equipment manager. Courtney played hockey at St. Mary's University in Winona, Minnesota before returning to Dubuque to serve as trainer and equipment manager for the Saints for four seasons. He has served as the trainer for 12 USHL All-Star Games, four USA Top Prospect Games, and four USA Hockey Select teams, as well as working the World Junior Championship in the Viking Cup. Courtney has served USA Hockey at international tournaments in Canada, Czechia, Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. Next, number 10, Iowa State visits number 3, Houston, tonight. This comes from the Associated Press. The game time is 8 p.m. That's probably Eastern time, so 7 p.m. Central. It's on ESPN. Bottom line, number 3, Houston, hosts the number 10, Iowa State Cyclones after L.J. Cryer scored 26 points in Houston's 82-61 win over the Texas Longhorns. The Cougars have gone 14-0 at home. Houston is 19-2 when it has fewer turnovers than its opponents and averages 8.1 turnovers per game. The Cyclones are 9-3 in conference games. Iowa State has a 1-1 record in games decided by three points or lower. Houston makes 43.4% of its shots from the field this season, which is two percentage points higher than Iowa State has allowed to its opponents. Iowa State has shot 47% rate from the field this season, 10.4% points above the 37.2 shooting opponents uh, of Houston have averaged. Cryer is scoring 15.3 points per game and averaging two and a half rebounds for the Cougars. Emmanuel Sharp is averaging 1.6 made three-pointers over the last 10 games for Houston. Taman Lipsy is averaging 13.2 points, 5.5 assists, and 2.9 steals for the Cyclones. Keyshawn Gilbert is averaging 15.4 points over the last 10 games for Iowa State. Here's a look at what other sports are on television today. 
in women's college basketball, we've got Creighton at UConn at 11 a.m. on Fox. And Indiana is at Illinois at 1 p.m. on Fox. And at 6 p.m., we've got Notre Dame at Duke on ESPN2. In men's college basketball, we got Virginia at Virginia Tech at 6 p.m. on ESPN. Iowa State at Houston. Uh, this is saying it's at 6 p.m. on ESPNU. And Kansas State at Texas at 8 p.m. on ESPN. And North Carolina Central at Norfolk State at 8 p.m. on ESPN2. And in the NHL, we got Toronto Maple Leafs at the St. Louis Blues at noon today on ESPN. And the Detroit Red Wings are at the Seattle Kraken at 2.30 p.m. on ESPN. Premier League Soccer at 2 p.m. on uh, the USA channel is Everton versus Crystal Palace. In men's college basketball, Buckeyes stun Purdue. Ohio State stunned number two Purdue on Sunday in its interim coaching's debut, winning 73-69 a day after the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee picked the Boilermakers as the early favorite to be the number one overall seed during March Madness. Bruce Thornton scored 22 points and Jamison Battle added 19 to help Ohio State pull off the upset in Jake Diebler's first game at the helm. Chris Holtman was fired Wednesday after several disappointing seasons. The beleaguered Buckeyes had lost nine of their last 11 games. Purdue had been favored by 8.5 points, according to FanDuel Sportsbook. Ohio State fans stormed the court. What a resilient group, said Diebler, who was overcome with emotion when he greeted his family on the crowded court. We have some great young men in there who came together at a high these last few days in a way that I don't know if any of us fully anticipated that they could get to in a short amount of time. Ohio State played with energy from the start, led 35-30 to 30 at the break, and six minutes into the second half were up by 12. With the Boilermakers closing down the stretch, it seemed like only a matter of time until Zach Eady took over the game, but it didn't happen. Lance Jones hit a three-pointer for Purdue to tie the score at 65 with a minute 39 left, but Battle hit a jumper and then, with 34 seconds left, hit a pair of free throws to bump the Ohio State lead to 69-65. An easy dunk by Edie reduced the deficit to two with 16 seconds left. Running out of time, the Boilermakers fouled Thornton, who went to the line and made both foul shots. Edie finished with 22 points and 13 rebounds, the 58th career double-double for the Purdue star, but the Boilermakers turned the ball over 14 times, leading to 22 Ohio State points. We just need to take care of the ball, Edie said. We out-rebounded them, we got more possessions that way, but we can't let them get on transition. We have to play on a half-court game. It's tough to win the game when a team scores 22 points in transition. In other Men's college basketball, South Florida 90, number 24, Florida Atlantic 86. Sheldon Miguel scored a career-high 25 points, and Chris Youngblood added 23 as American Athletic Conference-leading South Florida won its 11th straight game. University of Northern Iowa defeated Bradley 74-63. Jacob Hudson's 14 points helped Northern Iowa defeat Bradley. 
and Drake, 95, Murray State, 72. Kevin Overton had 23 points to lead Drake. Overton was 8 of 11 shooting for the Bulldogs. Tucker DeVries scored 22 points while shooting 8 for 13, including 4 for 6 from beyond the arc and added 7 rebounds. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.